Tonight, there's actually two readings, um, one of which is on the blue service sheet. The first one is from Joshua 8, verses 30 to 35, which can be found on page 223. And then we'll be jumping to Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. So Joshua 8, beginning at verse 30. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites, with their elders, officials, and judges, were standing on both sides of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, and Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and foreigners who lived among them. And then jumping ahead to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living gods, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of a better word than the blood of Abel. Thanks, Jackie, very much. We'll be referring uh, mostly to that first reading uh, in uh, Joshua. Um, but before we think about that, um, I just wonder... Over this last year, or perhaps two years, what's one of the most memorable meetups you've had with maybe friends or family? Something that you've, you've uh, met with people in the last year or two. Think about that for 30 seconds, and if you'd like to, chat to the person next to you. Sorry, Ben. Uh, about, about that. So you've got about 30 seconds, 15 seconds each. What's one of the most things that comes to mind, the most memorable, well done, Sam, one of the most memorable meetups you've had with friends or family in the last year or two? Okay, well, uh, do feel free to continue those conversations uh, at the end of the service. I wonder what yours was. I was thinking about that this 
uh, the last couple of weeks. And I think one of the most memorable ones was just before uh, last Christmas. And it was uh, James's baptism. I got to baptize my youngest uh, son. That was memorable for all sorts of wonderful things. Firstly, those of you who know a bit of our family history while we were here, a bit of a, um, a, a bumpy history in terms of um, fertility. And uh, to be able to celebrate and to give thanks uh, to God for uh, little baby James, such a gift from God, but also to have uh, close friends and family. And I know some of you were able to come up uh, as well. And that was a wonderful celebration, seeing some people who hadn't seen since before lockdown. That was one of my most memorable ones. I wonder what yours was. Perhaps you'd like to share that with me afterwards. Well, um, in the book of Joshua that you've been going through uh, in the evening service, uh, you've been seeing the gradual outworking of God keeping his promises with his people. And when we read the Bible, we see that God promise, God's promises are nearly always tied up with this one word, this thing called covenant. Covenant. Uh, a covenant is a pact an agreement made between two sides. And it's built around certain promises with the offer of blessings to those who keep the covenant, but also at the same time curses to those who break them. Uh, And the most common type of covenant that you've probably seen, but you didn't realize it was one, is on a wedding day. Because Christians believe that marriage is is a covenant. It It is a pact. It's agreement you enter into seriously when a man and a woman make serious vows i can remember on several occasions marrying some couples here at the front of church when that happens they are making serious vows about their intention to love one another and god also invites us into a covenant relationship with him in fact marriage actually is like a trailer for the great covenant marriage God's people with God. We can be part of his kingdom by being in a covenant relationship with him. But what does that actually mean? What does, it, what does this thing mean, a covenant relationship, being part of his kingdom? Well, I like to keep things simple for my own sake. Uh, and I like to remember it with three Ps and uh, Uh, Some of you might be familiar with this idea. So being in God's kingdom or being in a covenant relationship with God means God's people in God's place, knowing God's presence. So three Ps, we can all remember that. What does it mean to be in God's kingdom, to have a covenant relationship with him, God's people, God's place and God's presence? There we go. Nice and easy. Now, in this part of the book of Joshua, chapter 8, God has been staying true to his promises by giving his people their place, the land of Israel. And after last week's victory that, that you were looking at, God's covenant people turned to worship him. They worship him. We see this in verse 30 onwards. And Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. 
Now, when we read this, think about everything that happened last week, it feels a bit spontaneous. So that all of a sudden, they decide to just have a church service. They just decide to worship God. Joshua's been part of this wonderful, victorious campaign. He's all excited, and in response, he decides to just worship God. But actually, that's not what's going on here. This isn't just a spontaneous act of worship. This had been planned for a long, long, long time. The event that we were reading about was spoken about years before. And let me read to you where it's first spoken about. In Deuteronomy, uh, while Moses was still alive, chapter 11, verse 29, it says this. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering, when that happens to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. So God's people are worshipping him in response to him keeping his promise. Do you see that? He's kept his promise and they are choosing to obey and to worship him. Now, I wonder what your motivation is for worshiping God this evening. Why are you here at church? What's your motivation for coming along to church this evening to worship God? What's your motivation? Maybe it's because it's it's where you meet your friends. It's not a bad thing. Maybe it's because you enjoy the the worship and the music. It's not a bad thing either. Maybe it's because if you don't come along this evening, you're going to feel really guilty tomorrow morning. Well, that sometimes might be a thing. Or maybe it's because you'd rather be anywhere that isn't talking about Wimbledon. I don't know. (laughs) Whatever your motivation is for being here this evening and for worship, I want you to notice the order of things laid out in this passage because the order is significant. The covenant people of God, the covenant people of God worship him out of thankfulness to his promise keeping. Let me repeat that. The covenant people of God worship him out of thankfulness to his promise keeping. Now, it's important to notice that this worship, it's not very elaborate, isn't it? They haven't waited for the band to turn up. Uh, They haven't decided to create all of these beautiful things. Have a look at verse 31. They were told to build an altar, an altar, something to offer sacrifices, but just out of uncut stones. You know, like this picture, just hurriedly put together. Just just find some stones, just, just make an altar, make a little sort of table thing that you can sacrifice. Keep it simple. This isn't a beautifully elaborate piece of artwork, is it? This is something simple that gets the job done. Do you know, so often in our life, we get spent up, spending so much time on certain things that aren't really that important, that negatively affect our focus on God. And that happens in the church as well. Perhaps you've even experienced that if you serve in some way. It's not just the distraction of fancy looking altars that can be a problem, but when anything, whatever it is, when anything is more appealing to us than God, that's when it becomes an issue. Or if we would turn up to church this evening and something was missing, so there was no guitar or no drums or no coffee or no screens. We say, do you know what? It wasn't that great a service without those things there. That's when those things become an issue. There is something to be said as well. I'm not saying those things are bad, those things are good. But there's something to be said for keeping the main thing the main thing, to keep the focus on God above anything else when we are worshipping. Because it could be all sorts of things that could distract us. Uh, it could be the preaching. Uh, it could be the music. 
It could be the youth work, it could be the sound and vision, or even how good the coffee tastes. If any of those things become more important than just gathering to worship God, almighty God together, perhaps we need to press pause on those things and check our own motivation. Maybe speak to a Christian friend that we trust, say, do you know what, this is becoming a bit of an idol for me. Please, would you pray for me? Let's make worshipping Christ the main thing. I pray that is true for you here. I pray that's true for us up the road at St. Peter's as well. So we thought about initially then our motivation for worship. What's your motivation for being here this evening? But I want to get a little bit deeper and I want to get a little bit more uncomfortable, if that's all right for everyone. Um, I want to ask you, what's your motivation to obey? What's your motivation for obedience? For obeying God. What motivates you to obey God in the big things, but in the little things? What motivates you when when your friends and family are looking on, but what motivates you when no one's looking? What's your motivation for obedience? Well, let me just read that bit from Deuteronomy again. It says, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim the blessings and on Mount Ebal the curses. Now, what's going on here? Well, what we have here is a lived out illustration. It's a true story, but it's a lived out illustration that God has given his people through Moses and then through Joshua of what obedience can look like and what our motivation can be being in a covenant relationship with God. And it's spelt out the the blessings on Mount Gerizim, which is one of those mountains, don't ask me which one, and the curses on Mount Ebal. Blessings on Mount Gerizim, let's say the one on the right-hand side, and blessings on Mount Ebal. Or to put it another way, these are the consequences of living right, and these are the consequences of living wrong. Now, I'd hazard a guess that for Probably most people, that most of the time, obedience is motivated by one of these two things. It's either motivated by the desire for blessings or it's motivated by the fear of curses. And they can have their use. But what I want to explore with you this evening is how they are insufficient for us in God's kingdom. Well, I think most of the people who have some kind of belief in God probably fall into one of these two characters categories but what is this obedience uh, that that we're talking about what is it the thing about our motivations to obey what it what are we supposed to obey anyway well let's have a look at verse 32 it says there in the presence of the israelites joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of moses now there were no photocopiers or scanners in joshua's day so he does what he can and he writes them down he's reenacting what Moses did all those years before when he was given the law by God on the mountain. The law that Moses had then come down and delivered to the people. And and that law included within it, of course, the Ten Commandments, but also other laws for how the people were to live. You see, the law and commandments, as they were then, the guide for how you should live, they are still useful for us today in knowing how we should obey God. This is what the obedience is. In fact, I'm sure if you come along to the eight o'clock communion service, it might be a bit early for some of you. If you go along to the eight o'clock communion service, um, at the beginning of the service, they read out most weeks, the 10 commandments. And 
they are read out firstly because it helps us to know how we are to live in God's kingdom. But also they show us what to do when we get things wrong. How we need to repent and turn back to God. When we, we fail to live up to life in God's kingdom. But this is good because it means we don't have to guess how we're supposed to live in God's kingdom. Our world is a pretty confused place at the moment. People trying to work out what is the best way to live. You know, what is right, what is wrong, what is virtuous, what is bad. But we don't have to guess how to live in God's kingdom. He's given us that with clarity in his word, the Bible. And that should come as a great relief to us because we're not left wondering what pleases God and what doesn't. But at the same time, within these laws, there are laws that we might call ceremonial laws. And it's important just to understand some of the difference there as well. And these are laws that applied specifically to the nation of Israel, the people of God at that time. Okay? These were often visual things to demonstrate that these people were different than the surrounding nations, that God had a special purpose for them. That purpose being that ultimately the Messiah would come from that nation. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, would come from Israel. But these were ceremonial things, things like what they shouldn't eat and, and what they shouldn't wear and, and, and what to do when you had certain illnesses. They don't apply to us in the same way today. But there are always laws that apply to people of God under his covenant. And and in fact, if you read from the book of Acts in the New Testament, you'll see how the church was guided by the Holy Spirit to see that certain laws in the Old Testament, things like circumcision and these food laws, no longer applied to the new covenant people of God. I'll get on to what that means in a moment, more on that later. But that's not all. Not only did the Holy Spirit help the church to understand what laws were specific to Israel and what were uh, ongoing laws, moral laws that we might say, but also in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us that he hasn't come away to just to do away with the law, just to chuck it out. He's come to what? Fulfill it. He's come to fulfill the law. All of those laws, all of the Old Testament were pointing towards Christ. So let's think about, if that's the obedience, let's think a little bit more about what it is that motivates people to obey in the first place. We'll think about those two mountains again. But first, let me read from verse 34 to 35. It says, Afterward, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua didn't read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children, and the foreigners who lived among them. So Joshua has repeated to this great meetup. We were thinking about great meetups that we've had. This, this is a great meetup happening right here. He's repeated to this great meetup of God's people the words of the law, the blessings and the curses. And it says that no one has got an excuse for not knowing. Everyone was there. In this community, they've all heard it, the men, the women, the children, and even the foreigners that they've picked up along the way who have become part of their community. The covenant sets out very clearly then, doesn't it? There are certain things that if you do or don't do, you will be blessed. And certain things that if you do or don't do, you will be cursed. But, but what are those blessings? What are those curses? What do they look like? Well, that's all tied in with what it means to be part of God's Kingdom. Remember those three P's? Can anyone remember what they are? People, place, and presence. 
excellent. Now, the sad thing is that as you read through the Old Testament, um, I wonder, is anyone here doing um, uh, the Bible in one year? Either on the app or reading? Just me? Or has anyone done it before, maybe? Oh, we've got one person. Oh, that. Excellent. Well, um, if you're doing Bible in one year at the moment, um, we, uh, so the Old Testament readings, we're going through two kings at the moment uh, and seeing how basically God's people, and particularly the leaders, God's people of that time, they, they didn't obey. They weren't seeking the blessings. They were falling foul to the curses. And we've seen how time and time again the people were led astray. They disobeyed the law of God and they were cursed as a result. They turned to other gods and other horrible things that God had said were evil and wrong. And this means that God's people were taken out of God's place. If you were here for the um, walking through the Bible, the Lenkos did a few years ago here, you might remember some of the actions. Uh, Israel scattered, Judah exiled, Judah returned. We still practice that at the breakfast table sometimes. We don't get them all right, but it might prompt you to remember. So yeah, the Israel, northern kingdom scattered, the southern kingdom were taken to exile in Babylon for 70 years because they had disobeyed God. So they stopped knowing God's, uh, they stopped being God's people in God's place because they were scattered or taken into exile and they stopped knowing God's presence as well because the temple where God was believed to dwell was destroyed. And because of that, they ceased to be God's people. No longer a place, no longer God's presence, no longer a people. The blessings were clear, but so were the curses. And in the end, despite some brief periods of obedience along the way and some slightly encouraging signs, they chose the curse. They chose Mount Ebal instead of Mount Gerizim. Now we have this to read today, not just because it's an interesting story, but to warn us of the dangers. Not of the dangers of going into exile in a foreign land, that's probably not going to happen to us, but of the dangers of disobedience. Of disobedience that actually leads to separation from God, that leads to hell. Eternal separation from the God of love, light and life. God doesn't want us to go there. That's why we're being warned. Now, it's very easy also for us to look at this story and to look at the history of Israel and almost sort of sneer at them. Oh, how can they be so stupid to choose curses over blessings? Isn't it obvious what the right thing is? But actually, that's to miss the point, is it? Because they are just like us. I wonder how many times have you felt yourself throw something away because of a brief moment of stupidity? Maybe you gave into anger and you broke something special. Maybe you gave into pride and said something hurtful. Or maybe you gave into lust and broke someone's trust. But not only does all of this mean that we fail to live up to God's standards, we even fail to live up to our own standards, don't we, of how we should live. We don't even have to be a believer to experience this. If you're here and you're not a believer, you've probably experienced this too. We all know, whoever we are, that arrogance and selfishness and hypocrisy, uh, they're all bad things, aren't they? Whether we're a believer or not. But time and time again, we find ourselves doing those things, don't we? We do end up being arrogant and selfish and hypocritical, even if we know we shouldn't. We can't even live up to our own standards, let alone God's amazing standards. We allow ourselves to be drawn into those things that result in curses. We, we willingly choose to go and be on Mount Ebal. But how do the, we try and cope with this most of the time? Well, a lot of people try and cope with this by spending their lives being fearful of those curses. 
eventually going to get up with them. It's only a matter of time. Now, at times, that can help us. If we're, if we're thinking about something really stupid, the, the, thinking about the consequences can help us. But it can only help us so long and so much. It is right to be warned of wrong behavior. That's part of what it means to be a parent. You, you warn your children about the consequences of bad behavior, but also the blessings of good behavior too and good thinking. Well, in that case, perhaps we're thinking that the solution then is just to try really hard to avoid the curses and try really, really hard to get the blessings. Maybe that's what we need to do. There's probably even more people who have that particular view of what God is like. We just have to avoid the curses, work really, really hard for the blessings, and God will be pleased with us at the end of the day. So that means if we go to church enough, or if, uh, if we pray enough, and we read the Bible enough, or we do enough good things, then well, God will surely have to bless us. We've worked so hard for his blessing. But there's a problem with both of those views, isn't there? I wonder if you've seen what they are. It's because of the motivation behind them. If our motivation to obey God is to avoid curses, well, then we're just living life out of fear. And God tells us in the Bible we shouldn't fear. Or if our motivation is to seek blessings, then we're just doing that out of pride because we think that we can do it. So it's either fear or pride at the end of the day, our motivations for obeying God. Now, did I just come down the road this evening to make you all feel like failures? Well, only partly. (laughs) Only because I've got a plan. You see, God's people under the old covenant, they had a way of dealing with failures. And we call it the sacrificial system. It's, It's what's mentioned there about making sacrifice. That means when someone has sinned, it could be resolved through sacrifice. So, for example, if you break one of the laws, if you stole one of your uh, neighbor's animals or something, instead of being cursed, you could appeal to the, the priest, like in this picture, to offer a sacrifice on your behalf. And your sin could be atoned for, or this is a fancy Bible word for meaning done away with. Your sin could be done away with for the sake of the sacrifice done to deal with your curse. Now, why am I telling this? How does uh, a man in those clothes help us today with when, our fail, when we fail? Well, it's because this passage in Joshua actually points forward to a different mountain. We've got the mountain here of Gerizim and Ebal, but it points forward to a different mountain. And it points forward to a different sacrifice. You see, the Bible makes it clear only one person ever in the history of everything has ever perfectly kept God's law. And he is the one who alone has the right to stand on Mount Gerizim, hearing the blessings ringing in his ears. Those blessings of being in a forever covenant relationship with God. Only one man ever who ever deserves to stand on Mount Gerizim. Whereas I'm afraid all of the rest of humanity, the Bible says, because of our sin, they belong over here on Mount Ebal, hearing instead the curses of what it means to be removed from God and his kingdom. But if we zoom through the Bible to a different mountainside, one outside the walls of Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ, the perfect Israelite, willingly became a curse-bearing sacrifice on the cross. He took the curses of Mount Ebal, 
so that we can be on Mount Gerizim. I wonder if you realize that, the lengths that he went to take our curses, to give us his blessings. Now, as we saw in in this passage, Joshua repeated the facts of the old covenant blessings and curses. But as we will soon celebrate in Holy Communion, Christ's sacrifice actually ushers in the new covenant. Heard about that word earlier. Christ's sacrifice ushers in the new covenant. And this is our new covenant meal of his eternal and grace-given blessings. I want us all just to try and do our best to take that in this evening, even in some tiny, minuscule new way, perhaps. Gerizim to Ebal and Ebal to Gerizim. And if you do that, let me suggest that we have a better motivation for obeying God, not one that is about fearing curses or prideful trying to uh, seek his blessings. And this is from that reading. Uh, Hebrews 12 just goes on uh, to verse 28. I'll put it up on the screen as well. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. You see, this actually takes us full back circle to our motivation for worship as well. Because our worship of God and our obedience to God are not two separate things. They're in fact the same thing. Our motivation for worship and for obedience, for life in that covenant relationship with Almighty God. So please hear this this evening. Our motivation for obeying God shouldn't rest alone on seeking his blessings or fearing his curses, but with grateful hearts for what he has already done. But if you don't really trust that and what he's already done for you, well, then your motivation will only ever be blessing-seeking or curse avoidance. And you'll never be sure. You'll never be sure you've avoided enough or done enough, which is just pride and fear instead christ's sacrifice of this new covenant his blood shed for us at the cross it demands our awe our reverence and our committed worshipful obedience now perhaps you need to be reminded of that today well do uh, do grab me uh, or ben or, or someone else here after the service if you'd like to chat and perhaps pray more about that. But I, I do pray for all of us, all of you here, and all of us up, up the road as well, that just like the people renewed their part in the old covenant with Joshua, as we come to share in the new covenant meal, we too would be renewing our commitment to obey, not, not out of fear or out of pride, but out of joyful, thankful hearts. Let's recommit or perhaps even commit for the first time then to joy-filled, reverent awe, worshipful obedience to Christ, the mediator of a new covenant bought through his precious blood. Amen.